Hi everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today we're taking a look at the psychology behind our decision-making process. I think this topic is relevant to the way we approach investing, uh, to the way we behave as consumers, to how we approach our personal finances, and really it's applicable to so many different facets of our everyday life as you'll see in this episode. Now before I start, as usual, I want to share a few books with anyone who wants to learn more. The first one is called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who's a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. Personally, I think it's a very fascinating book. It's very relatable and really opens our eyes to the way we think and behave. The second book, uh, down a very similar alley, is called Misbehaving by Richard Thaler, who's also a recipient of the Nobel Prize. Again, it's a very down-to-earth book that presents a branch of behavioral economics, which basically illustrates the fact that humans don't always act rationally, right? They make mistakes in practice as opposed to what is dictated by a lot of economic theories. This is the premise of today's show. Stay with me. Let's begin this episode with a simple exercise. If I asked you what 2 plus 2 is, you're able to answer in less than a second. You didn't have to think about it, you didn't need to calculate it. But what if I asked you what 24 times, uh, let's say 17 is? Now you're probably tensing up, and if you're like me, you would spend a good amount of time calculating it. And we'd agree that here you're exerting a lot more mental effort. So this is a simple exercise to illustrate the two ways our brain functions, or two systems of thinking. The first system which used to answer 2 plus 2 was automatic, it was quick, and it was effortless. And that same system kicks in, for example, when you're driving on an empty road or when you detect a loud noise in a room. So basically think of whenever you complete a routine action on autopilot. But the second system requires active and voluntary efforts, like when you're faced with a more complex problem, in our case, a difficult multiplication problem, or when you're faced with a complex choice, for example, when you have to pick a house. And for the most part, our first automatic system can take care of most of the tasks in our everyday life. It's able to jump to conclusions without us having to extensively analyze every situation. And it's extremely helpful because if we had to exert effort in every little task like tying our shoelaces, we'd probably suffer from information or sensory overload. But the problem arises whenever our automatic system interferes with a sensitive problem, which does require extensive analysis and that has concrete consequences. And for example, since this podcast is about finance and financial literacy, let's say that our complex problem is to choose a company to invest in, or we have to pick the structure of a mortgage. And that's when cognitive biases, which are basically errors in judgment, will negatively affect our decision making. And now's a good time to introduce heuristics. A heuristic is a pretty fancy term to designate a shortcut which our brain takes to solve complex problems. And while like I've mentioned, shortcuts can be useful in many instances, the fact that we don't always exert the necessary mental effort will lead to inevitable errors in judgment, which are called systematic errors. For example, take the question of whether a company is a good investment. That in itself is a pretty complex problem to solve, which requires extensive analysis of the company and of the industry in general. 
but what ends up happening is that a lot of people, and especially if they're asked on the spot, will take a shortcut and answer an easier question instead. For example, in their minds, they might substitute the original question, which was, how much is this company worth? by an easier question, for example, how much does this company's stock cost? Or have I seen this company on the news recently? So you see what's happening here. We're tempted to swap out a complex problem and answer an easier one instead, which unfortunately leads to an error in judgment. All right, let's talk about a second type of cognitive bias. Most of us, and myself included, we have a tendency to believe and to confirm. And this is called the confirmation bias. For example, how many times have we been in an argument and we're only looking for information which conforms with what we believe in while kind of actively ignoring any evidence which would prove us wrong? In those cases, we're just stuck in a screaming match where both parties think that they're right. Another example is when we're doing research at school or research that we'd have to present to other people later on. Again, we have a tendency to look for evidence which would confirm what we already know. But of course, we know that the rational way to approach research is to look for evidence which would disprove our hypotheses. So evidence which would prove us wrong. And the confirmation bias, in plain English, is called the what you see is all there is phenomenon. And that can lead to several errors in judgment. For example, when we think that what we see is all there is, we tend to ignore the quality, and quantity for that matter, of the information that are presented to us, right? We don't even think about what important pieces of information might be missing. And this is what most people call being overconfident. A way to avoid overconfidence, for example, when you're undertaking an important project or investment, is to hold a pre-mortem. A post-mortem in business is a meeting which concludes a project, right? You're talking about what was successful, what failed, and overall, how can you improve? A pre-mortem, as uh, Kahneman describes in his book, is a meeting that you hold before a project. You sit down and you imagine yourself one year into the future, but here's a plot twist. Your project was a total disaster. And now your task is to summarize what went wrong. And of course, all of this is imaginative, right? None of this has actually happened, but this exercise mitigates the blinding effect of overconfidence. You're forced to really explore the different avenues which a project might go down, and you might be a little bit more careful in the end. Thinking that what you see is all there is also makes you vulnerable to the framing effect. So let me use an example to show you what the framing effect is. I can tell you, for example, that the survival rate of a surgery is 90%, or I can tell you that the mortality rate following the same surgery is 10%. Now, statistically, it's the same statement, but you'll likely make a different decision depending on which version your doctor tells you. And particularly, the framing effect influences us as consumers. For example, some stores want to charge you more if you purchase using a credit card instead of buying with cash because the credit card company takes a cut from the store. But there's two ways of framing this discrepancy in price between buying with a credit card versus buying with cash, right? The store can tell you that using a credit card will incur a surcharge or they can tell you that using cash will get you a discount when in fact both ways of putting it is mathematically identical. 
but as a consumer, you'll feel better if the store tells you you're getting a discount for using cash. So the trick to avoid this kind of error is just to think of another way of framing the statement. For example, if you have a financial advisor and they tell you that you'll be able to keep, let's say, 98% uh, of whatever you make with them, then in your mind, ideally you'll be able to translate that and realize, well, it's just another way of saying there's a 2% fee. And typically you're more likely to make an informed decision once you clearly see the different ways a statement is framed. In the last few examples, I used statistics to represent each statement. But if you're like me, I don't ever really think in terms of statistics. But let me use an example quickly to show you how stats can help with your judgment sometimes. So here's a question. Let's say we've got a character, uh, his name is Tom. Now Tom is shy, but he's extremely helpful to other people. And his other character traits is that he is organized and he is very tidy. Now, if you were to guess, is Tom a librarian or is Tom a farmer? And most of us would guess that Tom is a librarian, but we're kind of ignoring the fact that statistically speaking, there are much more male farmers than there are male librarians. And this is called the population base rate. And statistically, despite the image of a librarian in our head, Tom is more likely to be a farmer. But our mind is a big associative machine, meaning it makes connections with images or stereotypes. And we call this the availability bias, where we think of examples that come to mind quickly or easily. And so here I want to stress the importance of trying to think in terms of statistics, especially when we have numbers in front of us. While this sounds difficult for a lot of us, I think that only comes with practice. This is an excellent segue into our next topic, which is mental accounting. Mental accounting is essentially how people think about money. For example, budgets are a big part of mental accounting. In theory, money can be spent on whatever you want to, right? But in practice, we choose to impose different budgets, which are basically labels and restrictions on how to spend our money. Of course, it's a great idea to plan out a budget because it helps us keep track of our money and stay financially responsible. But sometimes, our mental accounting can be so rigid that it leads to irrational decisions. So this is one of my favorite examples from the book Misbehaving. So here in Canada and in the US, there are typically three types of gasoline at the gas station. Most people use the regular version, but some people like to use a premium gasoline because of the belief that it's better for the car. But back in 2008, the price of premium gas dropped by almost 50%. Now, the rational thing to do in this case is, of course, to benefit from those discounts and use the money you save on gas elsewhere. For example, you could go on a trip or you could get more groceries. But instead, because of rigid mental accounting and probably because some families had a budget for gas, instead of saving or spending the money elsewhere, people chose to buy the premium gas instead of the regular version. And they might have told themselves, hey, you know what, gas is cheap, so let's splurge. And I find this amusing, but this is a case of people being so stubborn with their budgets that they fail to rationally allocate their money. The next element of mental accounting I want to talk about is the notion of sunk costs. 
a sunk cost appears whenever you've spent and lost an amount of money and there's really no way of getting it back. But our human nature essentially wants us to cling on to the loss. For example, if you've made a bad investment, you're most likely never going to get your money back. But just the idea of realizing the loss hurts when in fact there are clear benefits to letting it go. For example, you'll get a tax deduction. But then again, a common phenomenon is that a lot of people tend to hold on to their losing investments and sell their winning ones. But the idea here is that you want to be able to identify a sunk cost and ideally let it go. The last bias that really interested me when it came to mental accounting is the house money effect. So let's suppose you're at a casino and you win $30. Now, the house offers you a new gamble. There's 50% chance of winning $10 and 50% chance of losing $10. Of course, you could take the deal where you could leave it. And if you leave, you don't lose anything. But a lot of people in this situation, after winning $30, will think, well, this is extra money. It's not really mine. So why don't I use it to take the gamble? This is another case of mental accounting where we're separating our money, the principal, from the house money, which we won at the casino. And this is, of course, irrational. And just like the gas example, money is money and there's really no labels or categories, right? You're not forced to spend it in a certain way. And the house money effect leads to some very irrational behaviors when investing. For example, a lot of people will tend to be careless with their income from capital gains or dividends. They might day trade with that money. And in their minds, they'll justify it by saying something like, well, I'm only speculating with extra income. And like I've said, there's no such thing as extra income because rationally, there's no reason to categorize money. And the house money effect leads to a lot of people to be careless and take unnecessary risk. And the last concept which I want to quickly explore is Kahneman's prospect theory, which implies that a loss has a bigger emotional impact on us than a gain of the same size. Loss aversion is, of course, a big part of the prospect theory. For example, I flip a coin. If it lands on heads, you win $150. And if it lands on tails, you lose $100. Now, statistically, this gamble has a positive value, which is $25. And of course, rationally, we would want to accept this gamble. But most people will not be willing to take the bet because in our minds, the pleasure of winning $150 is not worth the painful prospect of losing $100. And loss aversion is normal. It's part of our psychology. But sometimes, like in my coin toss example, loss aversion can lead us to turn away from objectively favorable situations. But the opposite of loss aversion is true as well. In some instances, we can become risk-seeking, which can lead to some pretty dangerous decision-making. For example, if I give you the following options, either lose $900 for sure, or you could take a gamble in which there's 90% chance to lose $1,000 and a very slim 10% chance of losing nothing. Now, despite the fact that the odds are very much not in your favor, a lot of people will choose to take the gamble out of desperation to avoid the sure loss of $900. And in real life, this can have some pretty disastrous consequences. For example, if you are trading with your money and at some point you lose a portion of it, 
naturally you'll be enticed to take riskier and riskier gambles with the hopes that you could recuperate at least part of your losses. And what usually ends up happening, unfortunately, is that this sort of behavior will turn a manageable loss out of control. In this episode, we've explored some of the biases we have when making decisions. In academic lingo, this is called behavioral economics or behavioral sciences. And I've chosen examples from the books Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Misbehaving by Richard Thaler. And all of these examples I thought were particularly relevant to our experiences as consumers, as investors, and to our personal finances. But there's so many other interesting theories in both books uh, with a lot of relevant and relatable examples. But if I were to pick one, I would suggest reading Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow first. It's probably one of the most interesting reads I've done this year. All the concepts are explored in depth, and the book is just a goldmine when it comes to common sense. If you have time, uh, do give it a shot. Alright, thank you so much for listening. Share and leave a comment on iTunes if you've enjoyed. And if you want, check out my YouTube channel, Spare Change Education. I'll see you next episode.